Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to James. And <laughs> some of you may say, well, Pastor, I thought it was Christmas season. Are you not going to preach a Christmas message? Yeah, on Christmas. Until then, we're going to keep walking through the book of James. And we are going to chase after uh, understanding practical Christianity in this world. And I want to I want to share with you something this morning that may come as a surprise to you. It may be something that you don't understand or maybe something you don't believe. But I want to tell you this. First of all, churches are not perfect. Did you all know that? Churches are not perfect. Now, I know you're sitting there going, Pastor, you haven't been here long enough yet to know that we're not perfect. Look, no church is perfect and every church has issues. Every church has squabbles and, and has disagreements, and, and every church has um, things they, they wrestle with or they fight over. And I found a list this week uh, on a website. I'm going to give credit to Tom Rayner on a website for 25 reasons churches have split. Okay? Now, I know that's an ugly word to say in a church. That's the S word in the church, split. But I want you to hear, I'm not going to give you all 25 because uh, some of them are a little uh, too silly. But I want to give you real quickly a few of the reasons churches have split. And he numbered these 1 to 25, but I'll, I'm going to give them to you real quickly. Here's one of them. There was an argument at a business meeting over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Think about that for a second. There was, a, there was an argument over the length of the worship pastor's beard. There was a church dispute over whether or not to put dividers, now ladies, you'll think this is great, in the women's restroom. An argument over whether or not to put them in the women's restroom. So my first question when I read that is, did the men's room already have them? Or did they just not care about the men? But the reality is they had an argument over that. There was a 45-minute meeting about what type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown? Two drawers or four drawers? It led to a split in the church. There was a petition put forward in another church asking that all men in the church be clean-shaven. I'm in trouble. I got this part figured out. This part I hadn't figured out yet. Can you imagine that? That led to a church split. That someone said, every man needs to be clean shaven. There was a dispute about whether or not the church could use cran grape juice instead of grape juice for communion. A argument over whether or not you could use cran juice well of course you should use grape juice it's in second opinions three nine but the reality is is it caused a church to split there was a church business meeting about whether or not the church should purchase a weed eater it took two meetings doug two meetings to resolve whether or not to buy a weed eater. I can safely say I have been in a church business meeting where it took two meetings to decide whether or not to buy a ladder. Didn't cause a split, but it was a long meeting. 
There was an argument. Now, my wife will love this one. There was an argument over what type of green beans should be served in green bean casserole. She had an answer. I like this one. This one, this one says a lot to me. There was an argument that eventually led to a split over whether or not a church should be allowed to serve or call things deviled eggs because they didn't want to let the devil in. Can I tell you, if you're fighting over the name of a food, you've already let the devil in. There was a fight over whether or not to call the meal of fellowship a potluck or a pot blessing. Some of you may think these are silly things. I would agree. But this is what causes churches to split. There was a <coughs> real argument that I have set through in a meeting of leadership that dealt with whether or not to sing happy birthday every week. I will go ahead and tell you, I was the pastor of that church, and I said, we'll sing it once a month. We sang it once a month. <clears throat> People got mad. I brought it back to every week. There was a standing ovation over singing happy birthday every week. Now, these seem silly, and they are. No, no lie. These, these are some silly things, and, and, and these are things, though, that are real. These are issues that divide the church over silly Silly things. Because can I tell you, if the devil will, can get an inch, he's going to take a mile. And the reality for you and I is that we have to see that churches aren't perfect. Churches are often at war with each other. But the reality is the war doesn't start in here. It starts right here. And we're going to see that today in the word of the Lord. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord reads this way. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, and you, I'm sorry, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is intimacy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But you are to ju- who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we come to you in your word, God, as we come to a moment where we open it to discover truth, God, where we open your word to understand, Father, how we can live in harmony with one another, God, how we can live not only in harmony with our brothers and sisters, but how we can live in harmony with you. God, would you help us today to recognize where we fall short? God, would you help us understand that we are sinners? God, and we desperately need to come to you. Father, I ask today that you would heal what's been broken. God, that you would allow us to humbly come before you and ask for forgiveness. Father, we love you and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, as we dive into this text, we're going to start off with seeing there's three different portions of this text that will help us understand the war that goes on within the church. The first thing we're going to see today is something that James does, and I think it's kind of sneaky, it's kind of sly, and it'll be the only time he does something like this, because James likes to just come straight at it and pound. He likes to come straight at it and just say, look, this is the problem. Here's how you fix it. But I love what he does here at the start of chapter 4. If you would notice, maybe maybe you didn't, uh, haven't been with us, but if you go back real quickly, flip back with me to James chapter 1 and start in verse 2. He says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers. Okay, and we're going to stop there. Now I want you to flip to chapter 2, verse 1. Some of you are probably not flipping as fast as I'm flipping, but he says, my brothers, stop there. Chapter 3, he says this, says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. There's this repetitive thing that happens as he goes through this book. Each chapter starts off with this phrase, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Because we've talked about this, the reason he says this phrase is because he's writing to fellow Christians. He's writing to other believers and he said, hey, we're in the same family. We're all part of the same group. We're all on the same team. And then he comes to chapter 4 where he's got to address the problem of the fact they might all be in the same family, but they're not all playing on the same team. And this is how he starts out chapter 4. He doesn't say, my brothers. He doesn't even call them my brothers until you get over further into the chapter. But he says this is what causes quarrels. See, he wants people to understand off the beginning, I'm angry. You ever had that moment where you heard somebody say something to you and you knew immediately they were angry? You know, for me growing up, it's when my mom would use my full name. I knew I was in trouble. You know those moments too. Mine happens to be if I call all of my kids' names because I forget which one I'm yelling at. 
The reality is that James is coming and he says, look, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm so mad I can't even call you family. Have you ever been that way in church? Have you ever been in a meeting in church where you've been so mad about something or so angry with something that you couldn't even tell somebody, I love you because Jesus loves you. You're just so mad. That's where James is. James is angry, but we got to realize he's, he's not just angry for the sake of being angry. I would say that James has a, a righteous anger here because he's like, folks, why are you fighting? Why are you gossiping? Why are you quarreling? Why are you being evil towards one another? We're all on the same team. I've always thought it was interesting. Um, I listen to sports radio way too much. Uh, that's just about the only thing I can listen to on the radio because I listen to normal radio. It's just too too nasty, too trashy for me. I listen to Christian radio. They play the same 10 songs over and over and over. So I just listen to sports radio. And I always love it when they're like, an anonymous source inside the team locker room. You're like, an anonymous source inside the locker room? So if somebody on the team is talking bad about somebody else on the team? And they always, the, the coach and the owner and the GM, they always all get really mad about this. But we have to recognize the same thing happens inside the church. That we have to recognize that there's a battle going on. There's a fight going on inside this church. And when James does this, when he leaves out the term brethren, he's really looking at him and saying, all right, listen to you bunch of little kids. <laughs> Quit acting like kids. Act like grown people. Act like believers should act. Quit being disobedient children. But see, the battle within the church, I think there's four reasons that we battle within the church. And the first one is right here. It says that it's our passions are at war within us. There's a battle within each person to live for Jesus or to live for self. James says we fight with others because, you know what, we, we fight within ourselves. What does Paul say? Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do, but I don't do the things I want to do. There's always this battle within self to, to understand, to, to do what's right. Because sometimes doing what's right doesn't always feel so good, but sometimes doing what's wrong feels great temporarily. And so James is writing and he says, look, you have to figure out who's the master of your life. Who's the master of your life? Of your soul. See, Jesus says it this way. He says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other. See, we, we battle daily to surrender to the flesh. Am I the only one that has that battle? I, I battle every day whether or not to surrender to the flesh. There are so many times I'll be driving through traffic and, and the, the Quad City traffic is more than I'm used to in my life. And, and I'll be driving through the traffic and somebody will cut me off or somebody will not turn right on red when they're supposed to. And I go, help me, Jesus. But there's this battle within ourselves every single day. And the sad thing is that a lot of people who have called themselves believers in Jesus have given up and given in. They said it's just easier not to fight. It's just easier not to, to surrender to Jesus and just give in to my flesh because the flesh is easy. Think about it. Living in the flesh is easy. You just do whatever you want to. 
See, to living for Jesus, he says you've got to pick up your cross. You've got to carry it daily. And he says that it's not easy. You've got to die to self. See, we don't like that mentality. The world has told us that we have to love and give to ourselves and take care of ourselves. Listen, I want to go ahead and tell you, myself, me, without Jesus, is rotten. Just rotten. See, when we, we live for flesh, we quench that spirit that's inside of us. See, this is when we see quarreling in church, is when we choose to, our preference over the kingdom. <clears throat> Can I tell you, I, I, I went through college and, and seminary in a time where churches were constantly fighting over music. And I don't know, maybe Grandview went through that time. I wasn't here. There was always this, this worship war. Oh, this style of music's not the right way, and that style of music's not the right way, and this is wrong, and that's old, and this is new. And, and this song, I always thought it was hilarious that people would say praise choruses uh, were 7-Eleven songs. You know, have you heard that phrase before? They say seven words 11 times. Uh, and so the reality is that I would hear these kind of things sitting in churches, and I'm like, it doesn't matter what kind of song it is if it points to Jesus, but when I choose my preference over kingdom, guess what happens? There's fighting. There's quarreling. See, when we let sin win, it's a slap in the face of Jesus. We've got to put flesh to death. Or flesh will put us to death. I want you to hear that. You've got to put flesh to death. Or flesh will put you to death. You've got to choose. You can't serve two masters. In fact, Jesus says it this way in the book of Revelation. He says, you're either hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You've got to choose. Are you going to live for Christ or are you going to live for self? The second part of that is that hatred is born out of envy and jealousy. Look with me in verse 2. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Can I just say that jealousy and, and envy and covetousness have been part of the church for years? It's been part of the church's problem for years. Why? Because it's been part of humanity's problem for years. Each one of us battle this, this desire to have more or to have uh, this greater uh, experience or greater power. I can recall so many times in my ministry when I can confess that I've been envious of, of other pastors or other youth ministers and go, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I could do this. I wish I had that opportunity. So many times I can confess that that's been part of my life. But see, the Bible's chock full of examples of, of jealousy and envy. I mean, just look at Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel because, well, he got God's blessing. And then you see David and, and Ahab and even David and Bathsheba. I mean, think about all the times throughout Scripture that the, the, the disciples fought over who was number one. I'm number one. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Jesus was always having to look at them and saying, guys, it's not about the role you have. 
And see, we always miss this, that we have to understand that, that war within church is over the struggles and strife of jealousy and envy. And look, you go, well, well preacher, what's that do with hatred? Well, he says you murder because you don't have. Jesus says that to have hatred in your heart is just to kill your brother. I've seen some really ugly and awkward things in churches, and thankfully I haven't seen it here, but I've, I've seen churches where Sunday school teachers wouldn't speak to one another because one of them had a bigger class than the other one. Where they would, they would steal people, steal people from another class. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares about the size of the Sunday school class if you're teaching about Jesus? See, what, what we have here is James is saying, look, look, you want to be the best, you want to be the greatest, but you're forgetting that Jesus says that you got to be last, that the least is what he looks for. See, when, when you're struggling with envy and covetousness, nothing is ever enough. Nothing is ever enough. That Proverbs 14.30 says this, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. You, you get consumed with these things and you can never let them go because they become the most important thing is getting your way. What does that sound like? Now, we have a few people here today, uh, family and, and that kind of stuff, and I'm going to ask them real quickly. What does it sound like when somebody whines and throws a fit when they don't get their way? One more time. Well, it's annoying. Ungrateful. I'm looking for a very specific age. Childish. Oh, no. I just said it. I said childish, and now somebody is watching at home, and they're going, that's who I am. Preacher, you just called me childish. No, I'm saying if you take this point here where you have to be better than somebody else, when you have to have more than somebody else, when you want other people's things, then maybe you should check your heart. And maybe you should see your spiritual maturity and ask where you are. But see, that we not only see that, that we have this battle for the flesh versus spirit, not only do we just see this hatred that's born out of jealousy, but one of the things that we see is that we have selfish prayer life. Inside of a, a church that wars and quarrels, there's a selfish prayer life. Verse 3 says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. James tells his readers, he says, Look, you're envious because you're, you aren't asking God for the things that you need, but for what you want. James is very specific in this idea. He says, Look, you have not because you ask not. You do not receive because you ask wrongly. Now, I need to go ahead and get this out there. You don't always get what you pray for. I think we can confess that really easily over the last week because we've really been in prayer for, for healing for a lot of people. And, and we're, we selfishly prayed for healing in a certain way. Now, now, I'm not saying that it's selfish to pray this way. I'm saying that often we feel selfish after it's over. Because we prayed for something, and ultimately, they got the healing they wanted, just not the healing we wanted. 
But I can recall as a child, and I think I've shared this with you, I can recall as a little child often praying very specifically that God would give me a million dollars. I'd pray that like every night. I'd lay in bed at night and I would pray. I would, I would give this prayer that my mom had taught me as a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Pray that every night. And then at the end, I was saying, God, would you give me a million dollars? And I would also ask for him to let me marry Sandra Bullock, but that was a long time ago. <clears throat> that was back when the movie Speed came out, a long time ago. But I prayed those specific prayers, and can I tell you, I have not received a million dollars yet to this day. And I did not marry Sandra Bullock. I married up. <clears throat> getting brownie points hopefully but the reality is this is that we i asked prayed specifically for things i wanted and, and i remember hearing a person say before well if you want something you got to pray for it so i prayed for it and it didn't come and it didn't come and for a while i was like you know what i didn't get what i wanted i'm stopping praying i'm not gonna pray anymore because i didn't get what i wanted the reality is this, he says, you ask, you ask and you don't get it because you pray wrong. I prayed wrong because it was not a prayer for uh, communication with God. It was not a prayer of, of supplication. It was not a prayer of worship. It was not a prayer of, of uh, intercession. It was a prayer about me, me, me. And if you sit down, if this is your prayer life, you sit down before Jesus as, as he's Santa Claus and you're like, gimme, 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 gimme. You're going to be disappointed. See, what James is really saying to people here, he says, you need to pray in God's way. You need to pray because what happens is you spend time with God. Can I tell you, your prayer life changes from gimme, gimme, gimme to Lord, whatever your will is, I'll take it. Whatever, whatever you want, God, I'll take it. Reminds me of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will, but your will. But part of why James mentions this, too, is he's like, instead of asking for everybody else's stuff, maybe you should go pray for that person. <laughs> what I, and when we talk about praying for somebody, can I just, this is, not, this is not coming from this, this is just coming for free. When you pray for somebody, can, can you just not pray for them to change to be the person you want them to be, but to pray for them to be the person God wants them to be? Too often we're like, God, I wish you would just make this person do this and that and this and that. And just say, instead of saying, God, I hand this person over to you, would you just bless them and take care of them, love them? See, the problem is we, we, we have selfish prayer lives. We pray for our will instead of his. We pray for our wants instead of God. But this one here, this, this, this fourth one here, I mean... This fourth one's a tough one, I want to be honest with you, because James doesn't, he doesn't hold back any in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is intimacy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we've got this idea there's this battle between spirit and flesh. We have this understanding that, that we... we covet and we envy and we have jealousy and that leads to to spiritual murder and then we have this idea that that we we pray selfishly but here's this this one here is huge he says we're struggling with spiritual adultery 
We're struggling with spiritual adultery. He says, this is where James comes down the hardest on the church. One thing I hope you understand by now is that I love punctuation when I read Scripture. And he doesn't just look at him and go, oh, you adulterous people. That southern speak for reading the Bible. He says, you adulterous people. It's an exclamation point. He's screaming at them. He says, listen, it is time to wake up. As a believer, you're united with Christ. You are married to the Lord Jesus. He says, you're united with Him. And what you are doing is you are cheating on the Lord. See, often we leave our commitment to Christ to to join ourselves with the world because it's easy. It's easy. The world doesn't ask you to sacrifice anything. The world doesn't ask you to to live a holy life. The world says you can do what you want. Feel free. Just just live it up. Have Have this fun, chaotic, crazy life. Listen, the world may look fun, but it leads to death. We have to understand this, that when we step outside of the covenant with Christ, we have committed spiritual adultery. And can I tell you that it's not often that we have to work very hard to get there. I had to look up the word adultery this week just to get the best definition I could. And and the definition... If you know what adultery is, the hardest part of, the, of, the, of it came at the very end. It said, a voluntary decision. Not that you were coerced, not that you were tricked, but that we often voluntarily make a decision to step into sin. Now, I know you're sitting there saying, well, Pastor, you just told me that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do, so how is that voluntary? Look, when you give the devil a foothold, he is going to get involved. You have to put on the armor. You have to protect yourself. You have to surround yourself in prayer. You have to surround yourself in the spirit. You have to surround yourself with others who are going to protect you and keep you safe. And can I tell you, when you walk outside of that covenant with Christ, you should expect the enemy to come. See, you can't live for Jesus on Monday through Saturday and expect him to inhabit your praise on Sunday. See, the world says, oh, just, just your pleasures are first. Your ways are first. And Jesus says, no, that's not how committed relationships work. Those of you that have been married for a period of time, you understand that it's not your way first. Your desire is to love the other one, to love the other person, and you get to reap the blessings of that see you wouldn't allow that in your own marriage would you You wouldn't allow that your spouse just steps out anytime they want to and goes does whatever they want to and and goes and lives a carnal life and you wouldn't allow that in your marriage so why would jesus allow that in his we've got to understand that if we want jesus we've got to pick jesus so first john says this says do not love the world or the things of this world or If anyone loves the world, the love of Christ is not in them. See, and when the Christians have been infiltrated by the world, the church follows. We need to be screaming all day long, just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. 
see, that's the, that's, the, that's the bad part. I know you're like, okay, preacher, you've been on this for like 40 minutes, and this is the bad part. Where's the good part? Glad you asked. It's coming. The reality is that we have a battle within us, but there's a cure for the chaos. There's a cure for the chaos. Verses 5 through 10. It says, Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealousy, jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The first four verses, James just absolutely train wrecks the church. The first four verses, he just, just says, you know what? I am going to give it to you whether you like it or not. He's like the parent who's got the, what do you call that? Um, pureed baby potatoes. Or I mean, not potatoes. Everybody likes potatoes. Carrots. And he's like, oh, just take it. Just take it. And the kid's like, mm-mm. And the parent just puts it over the lips and you're going to take the carrots. That's what James does in the first four verses. He's like, mm, 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 mm. Then he comes to verse 5 through 10, and he brings out this idea. He says, look, yes, you have messed up. Look, look, we, we know that we've messed up. We know that we fall short. But he says, but I can put you back on the right path. I can give you the answers. And then he lays out here, how do we get back to God? When we love the world, can we come back to Him? Will God accept us? Will He forgive us? Will He love a spiritual adulterer? Well, first thing that we have to understand as we look at this is understand that God is a jealous God. Now, I heard years ago, and I've mentioned her name for some reason like the last three weeks, but years ago that Oprah said this is why she could not be a Christian because the Christian God is a jealous God. And she's like, any God that's jealous of what I have is not a great God. He's not jealous over what you have. He's jealous over what he put in you, which is life. Remember, it says he breathed life into man through the nostrils. I love that verse. But See, the first thing we've got to realize is God is a jealous God, and he has every right to be. He has every right to be a jealous God. He's the only one who has the right to be jealous. He redeemed us and He deserves and desires our commitment. Deuteronomy 4.24 says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. See, God has every right. He's worthy and he loves us, and he has every right to be jealous over the things that we desire that aren't him. See, the great thing about God, though, is not only does he desire his people, he forgives his people. I love verse 6. I just love it, okay? If you have your Bibles at home, I want you to underline, highlight. If you're on the Bible app, highlight it. Pick whatever color you want to. Verse 6 is amazing. Verse 6 is amazing because verse 1 through 4, he beat us up. Verse 5, he tells us, God's a jealous God, and you better get your stuff right. And then verse 6, 
But, it's one of my favorite words to read in Scripture. But. Because what it tells me is while all these bad things have happened, something good's fixing to happen. He says, but God gives more grace. See, God gives more grace. See, God gives us grace when we fall. Can I tell you, that is a, that is huge. That is one of the major differences between Christianity and all other world religions is our religion, our Jesus, our Savior, our God looks at us and says, I forgive you, even though you've messed up. See, He comes and He forgives His people. See, it's important that we recognize this. It says, He gives more grace. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, God gives grace to those who fall when they come to Him and say, Hey, God, I've messed up. That's why a lot of people are battling these days. Why a lot of people are struggling because they're living in sin and they refuse to repent humbly. They refuse to come and fall down at the feet of Jesus and say, I have messed up. I want us to look real quickly in Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles at home, I want to encourage you to flip with me. If you're here, I want to encourage you to look with me real quickly at Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. I'll give you a second to turn. I'll drink some water. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to pray at the temple, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we want to receive grace. Man, we love grace, right? It's amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's a very important reason that when that song was written that he says, saved a wretch like me, it would be totally wrong if he said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a guy as perfect as I am. Doesn't quite flow as well either. The reality is that we only understand grace when we understand how far we've truly fallen. We really only understand how magnificent, how deep, how wide the grace of God is when we realize how far we've fallen down. Man, if it wasn't for grace, I can tell you I'd be in trouble. But see, only when we have experienced true repentance of coming humbly before God can we understand 
the next part of this that says that we are to submit ourselves to God. We've got to submit ourselves to God. What does that mean to submit yourself to God? What does it mean to, to, to submit to someone or to be in submission to someone? It is to understand that God's ways are higher than my ways. That God's ways are always better than my ways. And look, I've got lots of ideas. <laughs> I've got lots of things that I would like to do and want to do, but can I tell you, I never want to do anything that's not part of God's plan. See, if, when we submit ourselves to God, we look at Him and we say, God, Your will, Your way, I just want to be a part of it. And see, that's the problem that in these churches that were, are in war with themselves, arguing over how long a worship pastor's beard should be. you got a long way to go, Wyatt. He's working on it. <clears throat> the reality is that churches that argue over that stuff are more concerned about how the world sees them than how the Savior sees them. And if we're going to submit to Jesus, we're telling the world, we love you, we want to reach you, but we're not going to look like you. I think that's really been the problem for the church in general in the last 20, 30 years, desiring to look like the world instead of looking like Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about how we physically look. I'm just talking about how we act. Christians should act like Christ. And if we submit ourselves to Jesus, then we're going to act like Jesus. This other part here, he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. See, the enemy can't be in the same place as the Savior. When we draw near to the Lord, the enemy has to run. It says here, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Just draw near to God. Get close to God. Sounds easy. You know, though, one of the things I have noticed is that every youth trip I ever took or every children's trip I ever went on or any kind of uh, mission trip I ever went on, <clears throat> we had a really easy time focusing on the Lord because we left everything else behind. Left everything else behind. Left our, our phones and left our, our music and everything behind. We had left our TV. We had nothing but Jesus and each other. But see, we don't live in that cocoon, do we? We live in a world where we've got to recognize that we have to have clear minds, pure hearts. We have to clean our hands. We've got to come near to God. and We've got to do this through sacrifice and worship and giving and caring and loving. And see, James closes all this out with this one idea. He says, look, you've got to draw near to God. You've got to resist the devil. You've got, he'll flee from you. You've got to do all these things. And then he comes back here in verses 9 and 10. With a warning. It says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Such a contrast to verse 6. So it's just like, Grace, grace, grace. And you're like, Yes, grace. And you get to verse 9 and 10 and He says, Hey, weep. 
mourn, cry. Like, James, are you bipolar? What's going on? You're telling me, grace, grace, great grace. And then you're yelling at me to mourn. See, because what's happening is James is looking at the church and he says, look, you've laughed too long about the sin. You've just let sin pass away. You haven't thought anything about it. You've just nonchalantly said, well, sin's not a big deal because I'm going to get grace. Can I tell you, you should never look at sin and go, it's okay. You should never look at it and go, well, it's just okay. And I can tell you, I can confess, there have been times where I've made mistakes or said things I shouldn't say or do things I shouldn't do, and I go, well, I'm just a sinner. Or I'm just human. Everybody makes mistakes. Don't let your humanity be an excuse to continue to wallow in sin. Don't let your humanity be an excuse to continue to do evil. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. See, if we saw sin the same way God saw sin, we'd be broken. Sin costs God everything. It costs Him everything. And without Jesus, sin will cost you everything. I want to close just with these, this last thought here. Verse 11 through 12 says that we shouldn't speak evil against our brothers, that we should, we should resist from judgment and judging other people. I want to preface this a little bit, though. You see, we use verses like this to say, well, we can't, we can't cast judgment upon someone else's sin. I, can I tell you, you can't if you're full of sin yourself. I, I can admit, I, I, I don't have a pure perfect life i make mistakes every day so i can't judge you for the same mistakes i make but there is one judge who can judge you for every mistake you make there's one judge who can look at you and he can say uh yeah you're guilty there's one judge who can say depart from me i never knew you there's one judge who can say that your sins are not forgiven But see, one of the sins that God holds to be so great is the sin of those who cause the quarrels and the arguments and the fights within the church. Titus 3, 10-11 says this, For a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing he is a person who is warped and sinful. He has condemned himself. See, I read verses like that, and I fear for those who have who desired their own way over Jesus' way, who have desired their own way over the way of love and peace and harmony and unity. And then I go back to verse 6. This says, but he gives more grace. See, the reality is, is that the problem within the church starts right here for every single one of us. 
The church itself is beautiful. But sometimes our hearts mess up. And our hearts put us in the wrong place. But see, our hearts can put us back in the right place. If we humbly come before the Lord. And we ask for forgiveness. And we ask for grace. Then. Then and only then does Jesus save. And we ask. Jesus fixes. And so as we close out this portion today, you look at the idea that churches aren't perfect. But Jesus is. Churches don't save anybody. Pastors don't save anybody. But Jesus saves. He gives more grace. What a beautiful thought. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come to a time of close this morning, as we battle with this idea that, God, sometimes in the church we struggle. Sometimes in the church fights happen. Sometimes in the church we mess up. Lord, often it's over silly things that don't matter. Would you help us today to really grasp that verse, verse 6, that you give more grace. God, can we look at one another and say, you know what, I love you even if we don't agree? God, can we look at one another and say, I still need you to be a part of this church even if we're different. How boring would that be, Father, if we were all the same in this body? God, I thank you that we have a church full of different folks, but one Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for rescuing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so yesterday, Carrie, Laurel, and I recorded a song. You'll hear them on vocals, and you'll hear me on guitar. It is a tribute to our friend, Eric McDermott, who recently was taken home this past week. His big smile and amazing pos positivity will stick with us forever. Some know him.